For our second message today, we have a sermon from Mr. Matthew Steele entitled, Ministry of the Spirit. Mr. Steele. Thank you, Reg. Hello, everyone. Uh-oh. There's a tambourine down here right by my feet. Don't want that. So, <clears throat> I, uh, I'm very blessed in my job. I have my own office. And it has a door on it. And I like to close the door and hide sometimes from my coworkers, especially yesterday, because there was a great deal of silliness going on, as you can imagine, uh, Halloween-related activity. And I was tempted to just kind of keep the door closed all day, but uh, um, people kept bugging me, so I wasn't able to do that. And one of the other things that I'm blessed with in my office is being able to decorate it. Right? I mean, if you have a cube, you can decorate it. Maybe if you work in an open area, well, maybe you can't decorate it. And then certainly if you work outdoors, your workplace is probably changing uh, frequently. So you're not going to decorate that. And a long time ago, when I started uh, my business, uh, Renee helped me decorate my office. And I've always enjoyed naval themes, ships, something to do with being from an island nation, perhaps, and, you know, the glory days of the empire and the great fleets that sailed the globe and all that good stuff. But there's beautiful imagery, isn't there, of, of the ship and that journey, perhaps, over the horizon to that new world that, of course, we all live in. And in this decoration, we have this nautical theme going on. I have knots and a bell and a couple of ships. I think one of them is the Enterprise. Constitution, USS Constitution. I wanted the Enterprise, but you know. <laughs> and then amongst all of that, there's a soapstone that I was given. Again, when I started my business and it was an encouragement to me because, you know, my business was kind of like a new vessel being launched, right, from, from the dock and going out into uncharted waters and not being sure if this is going to float or if it's going to be the Titanic all over again. So I received encouragements. And one of those encouragements, like I say, was this soapstone. And it has a sailing ship carved on it, and it has an inscription on it. And I was given this by my father-in-law, Pat Dennis, and it still sits on my desk today. And I see it on occasion. Sometimes somebody comes into my office and picks it up, and they start kind of tossing it back and forth. And I have other toys for that. But the inscription on the soapstone says this, don't wait for your ship to come in. Swim out to meet it. We've all seen that, right? It's, it's, it's a proverb. It's something that you can see printed on things. You can see it on uh, paintings or tapestries, little soapstones. But it's an encouragement. And there's a lot of truth in this proverb. The notion that you shouldn't be passive, right? That you should be deliberate that you should have a plan, that you should follow that plan. I have plans, and I don't often follow the plan, normally because others don't let me, certainly when it comes to in my office. <laughs> but we should be, right? And we, we like this notion that we should be deliberate and not passive and not wait for things to come to us, but go out there. Go west, young man. Achieve that vision and that goal. Somebody's calling right now to tell us. <laughs> to not be passive, but to be deliberate. 
take your future in your hands and run with it. And there's a lot of value to that. And obviously we need to, there are times to be patient. There are times to wait for other things to, to happen. But I don't think it's a bad approach to life to be deliberate, to swim out to that goal. Do we do that? Do we have that passive approach? Do we wait? You know, one of the things, speaking about work, you know, it's kind of like, well, if I do a really good job, show my boss how hard I work, maybe he'll give me a pay raise. Or do a really good job, show the boss how hard you work, and ask for a pay raise, right? And that's the difference of being deliberate. But perhaps we are a little too passive at times, a little too wait and see. Maybe because <clears throat> it's a lot of effort to swim out there, and what if I get tired halfway, I'm going to drown. Well, that's not something that the Apostle Paul really had trouble with. He was probably the reverse. By my observations, if you read his, his letters, if you read his mail, and you read the, the history of, of his interactions with the early church, he was a man that was very deliberate, very focused. Even if he was wrong, right? He was focused, single-minded. He didn't wait around for others to invite him to the party. Paul brought the party. And the bar fight, probably, too. He was deliberate. He engaged. And if he needed permission for something, he went and got it. He didn't wait for somebody to come to the idea that, you know what, maybe Brother Paul would be would be good for this. Maybe, maybe we should assign him the job of writing most of the New Testament. There would just be no stopping Brother Paul. He was very deliberate. Like I said, even when he was wrong, in Acts chapter 9 and verse 1, <coughs> then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked that letters from him, uh, letters from him, to the synagogues of Damascus. But if, if, if he found any who were there of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He wasn't waiting to be asked. He didn't wait for somebody to say, hey, we should send Paul to Damascus. Paul was already thinking about it. He was planning on it. He figured out what resources he needed. He needed letters of authorization so that he could get the synagogues in Damascus to help him. He was focused. Maybe it was out of fear. He has to crush this, this Christianity, this rebellious group of people. Because maybe my career is in danger. Because what if they're right? And of course we start to see that perhaps that was part of his motivation. But he was confident. He was determined. He was driven. And I don't think he ever approached anything with timidity. He asked for those letters. He asked for the authorization so he could go and hunt down people like you. Paul is coming for you. That's where he was. And I'm sure he was a fearsome enemy. And you can understand, perhaps, the sensitivities of the church when his life started to change. And this is a continual theme with Paul, isn't it? He didn't wait for the ship to come in. He swam out to the ship, took a hold of the ship, changed its direction, and sent it in the way that he believed it should go. There wasn't a single man on the earth that could stop him. So God came and did it himself. Turn, if you would, to Galatians chapter 1. 
verse 11. As we know, God knocked him on his posterior on the way to Damascus, tearing his world apart, set him a new path, one that he seemingly was called to do from the womb. He says in verse 11, But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it. But it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul, uh, Curtis talked about that earlier. The revelation. This new revelation. Paul was not a disciple of Jesus, was he? He didn't follow around and learn from Jesus for all of those years. Not like the other apostles. It wasn't like Peter and James. In fact, we have no scriptures, I know of no scriptures, that that indicate that, that Paul was around Jesus. I guess he could have been. It might be interesting to to theorize about that. But his arrival on the scene is after Jesus has died, resurrected, and gone to heaven. So how is it then that Paul calls himself an apostle? How did he learn the things that he was with such strength teaching, with such focus teaching to the world? Well, he gives us some clues. In verse 13, he says... For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, in God's time, according to God's plan, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Arabia. He went to Arabia. What was in Arabia? Out in the desert? Some oasis somewhere? A retreat, perhaps, for recovering Jews. What was in the desert in Arabia? Well, seemingly out there, Paul had an experience. Because, you know, he didn't go and confer with those that knew the gospel. He didn't go to a man, but he does, by implication, show us that he learned the gospel from somebody. Later in 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 2, he said, speaking of himself, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast, except in my infirmities. Was it at that time? In Arabia, the Paul was sat down by Jesus and taught the gospel, taught the truth of the plan that Jesus had for his life, for the church, for the world. He didn't learn it from anyone else. He learned it directly from the glorified Jesus. What would that do to your faith? To my faith? What would that do to our faith? If right here, right now, 
as you sit there, you are whisked away to the Arizona desert. And there's Jesus. And he's teaching you. This is what I want you to do. Well, but, but I've got things to do. Is that our answer? <laughs> Not likely. It is going to empower us with this focus, isn't it? We are going to have this incredible amount of faith to do exactly what we've been called to do. It would change us. We probably would end up with that tenacity that Paul had. Just not giving up. We would be renewed with energy and passion. What would we do with that knowledge? What would we do with that experience? Where would your faith drive you after that? Paul continues, Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now concerning the things which I write to you, indeed, before God, I do not lie. Afterward, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But they were hearing only. They were hearing this rumor. There's a guy going around up north. And he used to be against us. And now he is teaching what we believe. It would be akin, right? Ian Hufton always talks about this. It would be akin to turning on the television and seeing the two witnesses right there, wouldn't it? The hair would stand on hair and on hair. It would be so encouraging to the churches. So powerful. Lifting them just for a moment out of that persecution that they're enduring in Judea. He who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. Hallelujah. And they glorified God in me. So it's interesting in all of this that Paul did not feel the need to get permission. You notice that. He did not need permission from the church leaders. What's more, he wanted us to know this. I mean, he wrote this, this testimony in this way so that we understood where he's coming from. Make no mistake. I wasn't authorized by any man. I was given this mission, this ministry by Jesus. So what is he trying to get us to understand? Why does he give us this testimony? After his conversion, he didn't go and talk with the apostles or the disciples like we've already seen. He didn't call headquarters. Hey, this is Paul. I'm on your side now, so um, what do you want me to do? He didn't do any of that. He learned from God. And then he set about the work that he was given. He didn't look to a man. He looked to Christ. Do we? Do we? You know, Curtis earlier was talking about traditions. In our church tradition, we have traditions, right? Some of which I think we could all agree, as Curtis was pointing out, were just not biblical. Petra comes to mind. I always pick on that one. I like Indiana Jones. It's filled in Petra, right? So. But there's, there's plenty of church traditions. There was a really strong tradition that Jesus was going to return at a certain date and a certain time. And it didn't happen. And we don't have to go through all of those. 
we have all had traditions that we have thoroughly believed in, loved. There's one that I used to love coming up here in a month or two. And it was a lie. A false tradition. Do we look for those traditions to still give us authority in our actions? We've had a tradition of calling headquarters, right? In the churches of God, we have been very much about that kind of structure. Lots of other churches are too. You go to the conference and you kind of get told this is, this is the plan and this is, you know, here's the themes. This is our national approach. And there's nothing necessarily bad about those, except, as Curtis pointed out, if they go against scripture. Or the individual ministry that God is calling us to. Do we wait for the phone to ring? Or some teacher to say, hey, I want you to come and do my work. Again, there may not be any harm in that. But is that the leading of the Spirit? Or is that the leading of a man that needs help with his work? Is that the Spirit of God calling us? Sitting. Waiting for the ship to come in. Right? That wasn't Paul. And I think that shouldn't be as either. Sitting and waiting to be called upon by men, even godly Christian men, can be dangerous. We can get enticed, maybe even a little kind of, wow, they gave me a call on oh, special. <laughs> or, oh, this, this large organization wants to partner with us. Is that the direction we should go? What do we look at the calling? The leading of the Holy Spirit. That's a harder choice to make. That's a harder voice to listen to, isn't it? It's easy to listen to a man's voice. It's a little harder to focus and hear the, the leading of the Spirit. Who is it that authorizes us? That calls us to ministry? Is it man? Or is it Jesus? Back in Acts chapter 13 and verse 5, the Spirit of God makes it abundantly clear who is in charge. Who the boss of this gospel ministry is. Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, and this guy by the name of Saul, who of course we know as Paul. And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. I would have loved to see that. What does that look like? With that focus, with that fasting, joined together, and almost an expectance that they're going to get an answer. And the Spirit talks to them. There's several interesting things going on. In the church of Antioch, there were already clearly men, and women I'm sure too, but the men are listed, Engaged in ministry. They're already teachers and preachers. Working. In a ministry. In the church. In Antioch. They're each working according to the gifts that they are given. Barnabas. Simeon. Lucius. Menaean. And Saul, which is Paul. Capable men. And of the right character. And I'm sure it was evident to everyone that they were called to ministry. The church got together, ministering 
to God, as it says, and serving him, serving the brethren, performing their duties to one another, looking for God's direction and leadership. And I get the impression that they expected an answer. And then the Spirit said, these two guys, I want these two. I'm calling them out for a mission, a specific calling. The Spirit speaks to the church. Does the Spirit speak to our church? Does it speak to us collectively? Because that's what we've got here. I know that the Spirit speaks to us individually. Every time I write one of these, I am reminded of that. Because I'm like, I, I don't know what to talk about. And God always gives me the words. And I absolutely know it's from him. Each one of us has those experiences in our life. But collectively as a church, does the Spirit speak to us? I bet you it does. It's just that we have a tradition of listening to headquarters than maybe the Spirit. And of course for us, headquarters has been long gone for a while now, hasn't it? Or has it? Has it? But the Spirit speaks to the church. And it says clearly who is in charge. It is God that calls men to his work. But there's something important that goes on here too. By the whole church listening to this. It's not just a few people over here deciding. It's not just the preachers having a meeting, right? And deciding, okay, you guys are really good at this. Why don't you go do this work? What can happen when those kind of situations come about? Well, nobody else knows. Nobody else has been in the room. And gossip can start to take place. Uh, Paul and Barnabas, they didn't like the way we were doing services. They're going to go start their own church. Right? That could easily happen. So by the Spirit talking to the entire church, directing the entire church, there's no mistake. This isn't a split. This isn't a new church being formed over here. This is just a new ministry being directed by the Spirit of God. There's no division. There's no conflict. There's a separate and distinct calling that Paul and Barnabas were given. Jesus, through his spirit, makes it clear. Further authorizing, too. Further encouraging Paul and Barnabas. They were not hitting the campaign trail like all these candidates, if you can call them that, that we have now, right? with their campaign buses and their airplanes. And these guys were hitting the road with bandits and dangers, wild animals, and, of course, the religious establishment that they were going against. They needed every bit of encouragement to pull in those dark times when they're being beaten and stoned and chased from city to city. How empowering, again, knowing that the Spirit of God has called them out for this work. To endure the work. It's funny that Curtis mentioned fasting several times. Because I have them in my notes here. You know, we, we fast. We fast individually. We fast certainly on atonement. But we don't fast the way the folks in Antioch did. About a specific need or desire or yearning within the congregation. And it's something we can do. It's something biblical, clearly. Maybe it's a little odd. 
It's not our tradition. But we could do that, right? We could fast. Fast for the direction of our congregation. The change, the, you know, the world is changing so rapidly around us. Legal challenges. I'm sure you're, hopefully you're aware of one of the things that the board has been debating is about how to protect ourselves from some of the, the laws that are being changed in the land regarding marriage. These are real challenges ahead of us. And our children will continue in this faith, continuing this church, and they will need a direction. We need a direction to follow. Could we fast as they did? Could we fast for that guidance? Maybe we need somebody to be leading us in a certain direction. Maybe we need a new, a new plan, a new mission, a new goal to work for together. We could fast for that. And there's this element about fasting, about pouring ourselves out before God. It brings that focus and allows us maybe to listen to the Spirit, to listen what it what it's trying to tell us and the encouragement and the direction that it's trying to give us. So here we have this small church in Antioch engaged in a, a fast and a, a very focused prayerful looking for God's direction and something very critical in the history of Christianity is decided in their church. It says, then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived in uh, Salmas, they preached the word of God to the synagogues of the Jews. And they also had John as their assistant. They began their work. They began the calling that the Spirit had made on them. Not at the direction of the church. Not at the direction of a single man or headquarters. But by the Holy Spirit. And even more interesting than that, like I alluded to before, this happened in a small city. This happened in a church that's kind of out of the way in Antioch. Not in Jerusalem. Not where all the big, big guys are, right? Not where the twelve were. And yet, this ministry that Paul and Barnabas would go on started to establish the vast majority of Christianity and the word of the New Testament that we have today. Led by the Spirit, not by man. Turning back to Galatians chapter 2 and verse 1, Paul continues in his testimony of how his ministry began and continued. And he said, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, and you know, 14 years of preaching in Syria and Cilicia. He went again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation. Here's that revelation word again. And communicated to them that the gospel which I preached among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means... I might run or had run in vain. And that's, a, you know, that, that's an interesting thing there. It, Paul's writings perhaps being a little confusing again. Why was he going up there privately? Well, because there are elements there in Jerusalem that are not godly. We'll read about them a little bit more. But he had to be selective about who he dealt with, who he was willing to partner with, who he was willing to share his ministry with. 
And he says, lest any means I had run or had run in vain. So if he mixed with the wrong crowd, not that they would annul the work that he was doing, but that they would annul it in the eyes of those that were in Jerusalem. And then, of course, that could have caused a split, a schism in the church. Oftentimes when I've read this passage, I kind of just assumed that Paul was going to Jerusalem to get their blessing on what he had been doing. That he, okay, it's time I should go up and check in with the boss and let them know. But of course, that's not what's going on. He's actually gone up there by revelation. He was, it was revealed to him, I want you to go to Jerusalem and I want you to teach these guys what you've been doing. They're there to learn from Paul. And of course, if the Spirit of Christ is in them, they're going to accept the work that Paul has been doing. It was revealed to him that he should go to Jerusalem, tell them of his work, tell them what he was preaching. It was all about, really, teaching the Jewish side of the church what God was doing and opening their eyes to the validity of the calling of the Gentiles. They had no power to decide if this work was acceptable. Rather, they needed to learn and understand that this was what God was doing and they needed to get on board. Paul said, Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they may bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Paul was not going to be wooed by anybody. He didn't care what kind of influence they had. He didn't care about where they were headquartered. He was not going to allow the gospel and the salvation that he was bringing to the Gentiles to be controlled by a bunch of guys that have no idea of the work that Jesus is performing through Paul. They were men, just like he was. They were called, just as he was. And in fact, you know, it's kind of ironic, isn't it? That, well, we'll read it. Let's read it here, in verse 6. From those who seemed to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. Yeah, didn't it? They think they're something. It doesn't make any difference to me. I'm going to do what Jesus said. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seemed to be something added nothing to me. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, who worked, and to whom it worked effectively in Peter, for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who were seemed to be pillars, <laughs> Paul's even kind of, he's not that impressed. Well, they looked like they were in charge. They seemed like they were pillars. Hmm. When they perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles, and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the thing which I was also eager to do. The Jerusalem church learned and understood that Paul was authorized by Jesus himself. They just needed to accept it. And the story. They did accept it. And they rejoiced in it. They supported it. There was no division. But neither was there any man-made strategy. Did you notice that? It's just the leading of the Spirit. Powerfully directing Peter in one direction, 
James in one direction, Paul and Barnabas in another direction. And it's amazing, isn't it, that their the theology just fits. Because, of course, they're led by the Spirit, the same Spirit. So, does any of this experience that Paul had have any bearing for us? How does this help us? What is it for? Well, do we need permission from some other place to continue to advance the gospel? Do we need permission? I guess you guys are not sure. Do we need permission? But are we waiting for permission still? Do we need a permission to build a ministry or engage in the community in Tulsa to reach out, to make our presence known in the city? We don't need permission. We need to listen to the leading of the Spirit. I guess if the Spirit says, just hang out and just do what you're doing, I just don't see that. But who knows? Do we need the direction of another organization? Influential leaders calling us on the phone and asking us to engage in their work. Maybe our, maybe our ministries can align, but we also need to be careful and not just assume that they will. Is that invitation at the leading of the Spirit? But I, we do need to do something. In all of this, we, we need to learn what Paul is, what his experience, how he worked his ministry, what he did in ministry. Even more vital today. And Paul is, is such a, a great tool for us. Because he went to a world that knew nothing of the God of Israel, right? He went to the world that knew nothing of Jewish tradition, of the laws of God, that knew nothing about the Old Testament. That's pretty much the world we live in today. I was having a conversation with a colleague a couple of days ago, and I mentioned about the story of the, um, you know, the, Sheepskin, right? With uh, Gideon. Just staring at me. What is that now? This individual grew up in the Methodist church. And apparently still occasionally visits the Methodist church in her community. Had to explain the story. And her answer was, wow, that's pretty hardcore. And I'm just growing ever more aware that there's just a total lack of biblical education in our communities, among the world. And we're less and less a Christian country and a Christian community. And it's been this way in England for even longer. So Paul is the perfect model, because we're almost there, aren't we? We just need a Mars Hill for us to say, hey, to the unknown God, because you don't know him. Listen, this man, Jesus, as Curtis told us, came down to this earth, died, and was resurrected. And that is the core truth of the gospel. So Paul is even more important, and his approach is even more important. Some of the words that Jesus spoke have been kind of bouncing around my head lately, and I was having a conversation um, with somebody here recently, and they too had commented about some thoughts that they'd had on this, this same theme. In Matthew chapter 9 and verse 35, it's words of Jesus. And he says this about three different 
three different times, three different ways uh, in the biblical account. It says, And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered, like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Is that something we should pray for? Is that something that we should focus on? I mean, are times really so different from Jesus' day to now? that that isn't still true. That there is the possibility of a harvest out there. I think so. And if that's the case, then what's our role in it? What should we do? Well, we should pray, for one, that the Lord will send laborers into the harvest. In Antioch, they prayed, and they said, Lord, what should we do? And the Spirit said, separate Paul and Barnabas. I have a work for them to do. Now, maybe the answer to us is different. I don't know. I don't have all the answers. But I think we have got to do something. We have got to do more. It's scary. People are messy. We start inviting the world to come in. They come in with all their messiness. But maybe that's something we need to pray about. Fast over. Think about to invite others into this church family, right? Again, in John chapter 4, and verse 34, Jesus says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for the harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent, I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. Is it possible that there are Men and women and boys and girls, young people, kids out in our community that have been primed, ready for the harvest. Ready for us to come along. Say, hey, here we are. This is what we're doing. This is a place where you can come and be safe and learn the truth of God. And to be encouraged and lifted up, enthused with the Spirit of God. I don't know. But I know we need to find out. We need to try. And again, I don't know what all this looks like. I don't, I don't know what program we should institute, what approach we should take. But there was a time, wasn't there, in our church history when people were on fire, when there was special events and evangelistic campaigns and there was lots of things, admittedly, done out of headquarters, but, but still, people in the local community. I remember there was an evangelist in the Worldwide Church of God that told me that the greatest, let me see if I can remember this right, there was something along the lines of the greatest influence in evangelism within the worldwide church of God at its height 
was from the members. The members brought in more converts than all of the radio, all of the different programs that that church had. And he was there. And I have no reason to doubt it. So we can do those things. Yeah, we can't, we can't do the big radio campaigns and the big events, but we can evangelize in our community. So all of this comes down to this. There was a different conversation amongst individuals within our congregation about it was kind of ad hoc conversations, I know, and some folks had asked me some things, and there was some ideas being generated some from our younger people, from our young adults. Hey, let's, let's do this, let's do that. Could we try this other thing? There's lots of ideas being created, and I, I wasn't there for all of it, but I liked the sound of it. And so I, I brought to the board last Sabbath, an idea that we have an open congregational meeting, uh, kind of presented by the board, but just open for us to maybe start to focus, maybe fast toward, and pray toward, and ask God for the leading of the Spirit, and give us some direction about some of the things that we could do in our community. And I know that sounds like a lot of work. But God can help us. He can do those things. He can give us the energy and the strength to do those things. I don't think our mission has changed. That's because Jesus didn't return when we thought he was going to return. Right? Because just like the disciples, our church tradition has fallen into that trap. So we need to continue. So I really want to invite you everybody, if you would, to, to contribute to this idea. We've scheduled it for January 9th after services, and uh, we'll have both uh, a sheet that you can write out any ideas, anything that you've been led to contribute, if you don't want to speak it out aloud. So be thinking about that, brethren. Be focused on that, if you would. To give us a new well, a new calling, a specific plan with the leading of the Spirit for our church to continue to do the work of the gospel. It's not about necessarily adding to our numbers. It's not about becoming better than we are from some human standpoint. It's about just doing the work of the gospel and doing it effectively. The harvest is truly plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest.